You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes. Reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that squeezes the docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze is always on for docs. It's the acceleration of cost and the deceleration of reimbursements. I want you to meet those on this show that are making a difference with host Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics. That's me. The purest form of healthcare is the doctor-patient relationship. It's the exam, the office visit. Outside forces have pressured this over the last few decades. They condensed this precious time. They forced doc in attention to a screen. They've uh, ramped up weights for the patients and ramped up weights for the doctors just to get paid. So healthcare is the average patient's number one worry in pretty much every Gallup poll. Yet PCPs and nurses rank in the top three or four every year for most trusted professionals in people's lives. And that's for decades now. The problem that's getting in the middle of this relationship is the middles, the bigs, and the bureaucrats. So they're always the smartest guys in the room, and they've created this game board where mortality overall has dropped to the bottom of our peer group, infant mortality and maternal mortality, bottom of our peer group uh, of developed nations. They own that, not the doctors. So I watched uh, doctors one time have a conversation. They said, do we own this uh, falling mortality? They don't. The bureaucrats, let's talk about them. How odd to pressure rather than to elevate the PCPs in a $4 trillion spend. Their cost represents under 4, 5% of a $4 trillion spend. So when you cut their wages 5%, your reimbursements 5%, you're not lowering costs of healthcare, even a small amount on the dial. It's barely a needle, but because the doctors have the least power in Washington, they are the ones that take it on the chin. They're also getting corporatized and forced into factory medicine by just the nature of the game. So force feeding a doctor, a digitized clunky system that doesn't really work as well as your Alexa does is exactly the state of affairs today. It doesn't make sense, but it's the, the world they live in. The middles in the big healthcare are not gonna be coming to the rescue. They're looking out for their own interest so it's a whole separate discussion to talk about the transparency movement and how that's going to help things, but it's not going to help physicians. So let's talk about today about some solutions for physicians that uh, this show addresses. And Dr. Arlen Myers, who's also an MBA, is a professor emeritus at the uh, University of Colorado School of Medicine, and he's a lecturer at the UC Denver Business School and president and CEO of the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs, which is... 27,000 members worldwide. Is that right, Dr. Myers? Um, actually, we have a bigger audience than that. If, if you look at our audience, we, we probably have much, much more than that. The difference is really in dues-paying members versus our touch points in our audience. But suffice it to say that our social media presence probably is about a quarter of a million, if not a half a million lookers. So there's a great deal of interest in this subject. Um, you guys were the first to sort of hit the ground running on this. I went to a meeting in Houston at the medical center. And uh, what I observed there is a bunch of guys in scrubs, a few guys in suits. 
Um, it looked like kind of a mix of business and healthcare workers uh, or doctors. And they were talking about starting businesses and um, blockchain in this case. That's a pretty typical meeting in a monthly setting, isn't it, in uh, most cities? Yeah, we have chapters all over the world, actually. And uh, SOAP, or the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs, by its very nature and intentionally is an open innovation network. When we created this, and incidentally, it's a nonprofit, uh, we decided that we needed to make it an open network because sick care couldn't be fixed from inside. So we include essentially anyone that has an interest in getting an idea to a patient. I observe, and I think you probably recognize that physicians are not famous for being outstanding businessmen and, and vice versa. The uh, What skill set will a group of physicians get if they come regularly to the meetings or are they going to just get introduced to people that can help? their idea along? What, what happens at those meetings that's where the rubber meets the road? Well, first of all, this notion that doctors are lousy business people is a total myth. Um, and unfortunately, doctors themselves believe it. Uh, it's just simply not true. And if you look at the history of medicine, if you look at how practices evolved as small to medium-sized enterprises, and then subsequently into digital health, care delivery entrepreneurship, social entrepreneurship, intrapreneurship, etc. There are numerous people that exemplify physician entrepreneurship. So that's wrong. It simply is a myth and, and it just keeps getting perpetuated. And of course, I push back and try to educate people to the contrary. But that said, um, probably the most important thing for physician entrepreneurs is to have an entrepreneurial mindset. And the problem with having an entrepreneurial mindset and applying to medical school is that they're incongruous. So you don't get accepted to medical school because you're a creative genius. You get accepted to medical school because you're a conformist, because you check the boxes, because you know what to say at the interview, because you memorize a bunch of stuff, and because you can perform in a standardized admissions test. So when you get to medical school, if you're smart enough to not tell the admissions person that you really have no intention of practicing medicine, by the time you get in, you really sort of have to hide your inner entrepreneur. And when you get to the opportunity where you can actually do something with it, then we can help you. Well, I was lucky enough in my lifetime to share the second angel network outside of Silicon Valley in American history. And uh, we did over $100 million in angel financing deals while I was chairman. Then I started the similar angel outfit in San Antonio, and we financed some very successful companies that are now leaders in San Antonio. So my experience from watching physicians is that they are the in, on the inside. They see the um, fault lines that are going on in healthcare and what needs to be fixed. Sometimes it's a software solution. Sometimes it's a healthcare delivery model. But um, I would agree with you. I've, I've met plenty of them that know exactly what they're doing and put know how to put a team together to to shore up their weaknesses. Well, having being a market perceiver is one thing. Being a problem solver is another. And as you well know, getting an idea to a patient involves a lot more than just knowing what the problem is. Um, and again, more specifically to your question, what people learn at our chapter meetings and other ways is education, resources, networks, mentors, access to experiential learning, peer-to-peer -peer support, and non-clinical alternative career development. That doesn't, have, that doesn't mean that you absolutely positively have to quit your day job to be a physician entrepreneur, but the clinical mindset is different than the entrepreneurial mindset. 
And unless you understand that, you're going to fail. Well, I communicated with you before this podcast about success stories that have been birthed out of this um, organization. And you gave me a couple of really good examples in Colorado, where you're based. I believe you sit on the board of CLIEXA. Can you tell us about how that got started by the society? Yeah, well, first, let me make a clarification. Um, I tell people that the business model of SOAP is a cross between Rotary and Match.com. In other words, we have chapter meetings around the world. We're a nonprofit. We're a service organization. But we're essentially a dating service. So I tell people that we make dates. We don't make babies. So when you ask me what has SOAP been responsible for, nothing. All we have done is connect people to other people. And I say we make dates, they make babies. Now, if you're asking me what kind of babies were made as a result of this networking opportunity and this collaboration, that's the list I provided you in Clyexa is a good example. I'm the chief medical officer for that company. And basically, they're a chronic disease management patient reported outcomes platform. And that the evolution of that company happened once again. The CEO, Mehmet Kazgun, is a data scientist, a data security expert. Uh, he and I ran into each other at a SOAP meeting. One thing led to another. What do you do? Blah, blah. And now we're three or four years into the project and he's been pretty successful. So it, it's, it's really about collaboration. And it gets back to my point of outside in, inside out, open innovation. Almost no industry can fix itself from inside, certainly not sick care. And until or unless we engage other interface technologies, whether it be aerospace or nano or media or you name it, uh, I, I just don't think we're going to be able to move the needle. So I belong to an organization here in Houston called Entrepreneur Organization, and we have the largest healthcare entrepreneur group in the whole world right here in this chapter. We have 167 members and about 15 are in healthcare. Um, my experience, because healthcare is such a messy space and there's so much room for opportunity and there's so much to fix and there's so many, many uh, challenges that my friends are all doing very well, but it's, uh, I'm trying to think, only a couple of them are doctors. Most of them are folks outside the industry who maybe were involved peripherally or involved selling a product, a product or service. And they saw just a giant cap and stepped in and, and uh, have done a remarkable job filling those gaps. Um, so what, what type of personality do you think is a good fit for uh, the entrepreneurial spirit and the entrepreneurial journey? Well, again, it gets back to the mindset and it gets it's get back to certain attitudes and behaviors. Uh, for example, you know, learning the things you read a lot about uh, learning from failure, uh, the journey versus the destination, um, understand, understanding how to play nice with others, which doctors are not terribly good at, um, understanding the innovation roadmap and how that works, particularly in the different subsegments. For example, Biopharma, med tech, digital health, digital therapeutics, care delivery, uh, med ed tech, they all have different innovation pathways. And consequently, you need different people to help you navigate that pathway. And I don't need to tell you, raising money for those products in those pathways are very different. Getting a drug to a patient is one thing. Getting a digital health app on an iPhone is another. And literally, you can do that on a weekend at a hackathon. 
So it, it really depends on what it is you're trying to accomplish, the problem you're trying to solve, and how you navigate that pathway and who you need to help you get there. I have a theory that the uh, most common mistakes that physicians make starting companies has to do with not really testing it with the market first. They're not doing a, a beta test with customers to see if they're even interested in it. And if it's a burning desire, migraine level headache instead of just a problem. Um, do you see that problem also, that they're solving problems that aren't really there? Um, yeah. I mean, we, we've there's been a lot written about you know, uh, product market fit, lean startup methodology, business model canvas, customer discovery, et cetera, et cetera, to your point. Um, I would say, and I agree with that, in some instances, and I don't think that the business model canvas is necessarily adaptable to certain things like drugs, for example. But that said, um, I think the biggest problem is that, and, and again, I'm referring to health professionals, not just physicians could be dentists, could be pharmacists, could be nurses, et cetera. And the same applies to bioengineers and to basic scientists. And the primary problem is they're problem solvers, not problem seekers. They're trained to solve problems. And they don't start with understanding who's the customer, what's their pain, how big is it, et cetera. It's, are they willing and able to pay for it, et cetera. So consequently, they create a solution looking for a problem and it fails. And the two biggest reasons why almost any startup, let alone a digital health startup, will fail is one, you create a product that no one wants to buy, and two, you don't have a viable business model. Do you ever get a sense um, when people come to you and say, what is my idea worth that uh, they should be talking to somebody that maybe is financing these deals? Or do you ever get a sense that they are unrealistic what they're asking for in their valuation? There's, uh, I've met so many of these folks we couldn't put in front of people that have a $10 million idea, but it's, they don't have a team together. They don't have any intellectual property. They don't have any traction, you know, with customers. So uh, how do you talk reality into people about what they should value their company at before they go out to raise capital? Well, you're, you're asking a couple different questions. What is, one is, what do you think of my idea? Two is, what do you think the value of it is? I mean, it, in financial terms. And and, and that happens to me relatively frequently because of what I do. In fact, it just happened yesterday. Somebody just, you know, through LinkedIn sends me a PDF of a business model and says, what do you think? Well, and actually I've written something about how to pick someone's brain. Well, the, the basic idea is it doesn't matter what I think because I'm not your customer. So whatever I say is irrelevant and I'm not going to waste my time looking at this thing, because again, what I say is irrelevant. The only thing that matters is what your potential customer thinks of it, number one. Number two, in terms of the valuation, you, you know better than I that there's kind of a black art. And particularly in a startup, particularly where there's no revenue, it's you know three people with a patent on the wall, who the heck knows what this thing is worth? And it doesn't necessarily mean in this day and age that you have to have any revenue to float an IPO. So it really is kind of a black art. And when someone says, what's the financial value of my company, either during a term sheet negotiation or a preliminary negotiation, you know, I kind of turf it to you guys because you guys are the ones that figure all that out. I, I had a little bit of a formula. I, was, I would give them a couple hundred thousand if they had uh, patents that looked like they were pretty solid. I gave them a couple hundred thousand if they had an amazing team. 
I gave them money if it was a migraine level headache that they were solving. So we had several two hundred thousand dollar add-ons that get, added up to a million dollars. And if they had a million dollar idea, they had all five or six of these uh, scorecard, if you will. And you know that's as good as any I've ever. Yeah, I don't mean to imply that you know angels or early seed stage investors, you know, just sort of pick it out of a hat. Yes, you do have a process. Um, in fact, a couple of days ago, I was attending something by uh, Rocky's Venture Club, which is a large angel network in Colorado, and it was a boot camp for startups. And basically it was, here's how angel investors are going to look at your idea, and here are the criteria, and here are the boxes you need to check off if you expect to get money. Yeah. There, there's also nothing, nobody really explains to any of these folks starting companies that there's a sort of a red zone. There's a blue zone is anything under a million dollars and you'll have a single check you'll get from friends and family, other doctors. It's a, it's a, you know, 10, 20, 50, hundred thousand dollar check and they're not going to write a second check. And then there's the over say three and a half, five million. And that's more professional money, more venture capital oriented. And then there's this gray zone in the middle that just is impossible. So if somebody comes to me and they say, tell me they're raising somewhere between you know, one and a half or two million and five million. I just look at them and I tell them, you are not going to find enough angel capital. You'll be constantly raising money and you're not big enough for VCs to pay attention, most of them. So uh, you're in a no man's land. So I just tell them, let's, let's rethink what you're looking for. So a lot of us are talking about that A gap and, you know, uh, series A gap. And so th there have been alternatives to filling that gap. And the reasons why there, there are you know, Series A gaps are too long to mention in this program, but it has to do with fundamental restructuring of venture capital. But there are other ways. So, for example, uh, crowdfunding or equity-based crowdfunding, which, which may or may not apply, SBIR grants or non-diluting equity, uh, getting affiliated with a university that has its own seed stage fund or affiliating with a professor at a university. Um, corporate venture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's lots of different things that are popping up. I'm not saying they're easy. I'm not saying that's where you're going to get the money. I'm just saying that, you know, where, where there's a gap, somebody's going to fill it. And so we're seeing things that are popping up to try to fill the A gap. Yes. And there's also strategic investors that may be your back end and buyer. When you put this together, they want to watch it grow up and like the people involved. I was going to ask you, are you seeing more interest by family offices in filling the A-gap? I'm not involved in the angel world as much anymore, so I, I don't have an answer for that question. Because, yeah, because we are, and, and that's another opportunity. Although finding uh, fa family offices and the people that run them is, a, is, a, is difficult. Yeah, they get a lot of opportunities. Um, what are some of the other more common questions folks are asking you, Arlen? Well, the ones that are commonly asked are, um, I have an idea, what do I do with it? Or what do I, what do, I do next? Um, how, do I, how do I find money for my idea? Um, I'm getting fed up with medicine. I'm burned out. Things are kind of icky. How do I develop a non-clinical career opportunity. Um, and those are probably the three most common questions that, that I'm asked. Um, and the fourth one 
sort of down the list is uh, I'm an employed physician, which are, of course, more common now than independent physicians. And the expectation is that I be an innerpreneur. In other words, I create user-defined value for my employer. And I just don't mean racking up RVUs and putting points on the money on points on the board. I mean innovation, new stuff, care delivery, process improvement, et cetera. How do I do that? And it, it's a problem because the employer doesn't train the person to be an entrepreneur. And that gets to the culture of innovation and sick care. So those are the four most common questions. So if you're walking one of your children, Arlen, into your meeting in Colorado and Denver, and they've never been to a meeting before, what would you advise them to do to get the most out of that meeting for the first time? Um, listen, don't talk, and meet as many people as possible. Uh, it's really all about networking. It's really all about under, you know, listening to what's going on, learning the lingo, figuring out who's doing what. Uh, and, and just getting a sample of what's out there. It, at that stage of the game, it's really just about kissing frogs until you decide what it is that trips your trigger and the direction you want to go. The problem is that everybody in healthcare or sick care and in, in bioscience thinks they have a good idea. The problem is, and they may, most of them don't, but they think they do. The problem is that they're not taught what to do with it, and it's unlikely they ever will in their formal training, which is the reason we created the Society of Physician Entrepreneurs. So uh, for the most part, I'd say about 1% of physicians, bioengineers, graduate scientists, other health professionals have an entrepreneurial mindset. That's the 1% we're trying to move through the funnel. All right. So you should have 700,000 physicians in America. That's 7,000 that should be members of your chapters. Roughly. And if you count all the ones in the, in the world, then we're looking at whatever that total addressable market is. But, um, and that, but actually that's changing and it's kind of inching up a little bit because of generational differences. And the example I would give and the one that gets the most press are medical students who finish medical school, have no intention of doing a residency, have no intention of clinical medicine, and they go make their own company or they go to work for a startup. I'll tell you a crazy story. My daughter-in-law got a little burned out as a resident at one of the Harvard hospitals. She was graduated from Harvard Medical School. She was on a trajectory. And just it was so hard to be disrespected so many different ways as a resident. It wasn't an ego thing. It was just simple things like getting paid for overtime, taking months and months for a couple hundred bucks. And she kind of burned out at a, at a young age and just loved medicine, but didn't like the delivery of medicine and didn't like the model of, of how hospitals operated. She dropped out of her residency to stretch it out and finish it over a year later and entered Harvard Medical, uh, sorry, Harvard MBA school just a few months ago. Um, her second month into Harvard MBA school, she is interviewing for a summer internship with a VC in New York. And she wants to get a job with healthcare delivery to fix all the problems she discovered. She doesn't want to go into drug discovery or medical devices. She wants to fix the problem that she's discovered. And they uh, don't give her an internship. And it's the first time I've ever seen my daughter-in-law, who's super successful, unhappy. She said, I didn't get the job. I, I've gotten everything I've applied for. And then they called her the next morning. And they said, we, and by the way, one of the questions they asked her is, what would you do with a million bucks? 
She answered. And they called her the next morning and said, if we'll give you 800,000 towards your million dollar idea, find the other 200,000 and we got a company. And she has been working in Manhattan the last uh, three months, diligently putting together her, uh, her idea. She's putting together a retail clinic that solves some very interesting problems on the street of uh, uh, Greenwich Village. So crazy story. Yeah, it's a very, con- well, it's, it's crazy, but unfortunately, or fortunately, which is another conversation, it's becoming increasingly common. And the, 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 the story or the thought exercise I give people is if you're the community representative, let's say on the Harvard Medical School Admissions Committee um, or UT in Austin or whatever in Denver, and you get this superstar rock star applicant who's got all the T's crossed, I's dotted, box checked, blah, blah, blah. And you say, why do you want to be a doctor and why do you want to go to this medical school? And he or she says, well, I don't want to. I mean, I'm just going to this medical school because I want the MD after my name. And I'm in Denver or Austin or Boston because I hear they have drop dead bio clusters. And I want to go out and work for a venture capitalist or whatever. Would you admit her? Of course not. Yeah, of course not. So, well, some some would say, no, we're here to train doctors to take care of the citizens of Colorado or Texas or Massachusetts. Other would say, you know what, we need to pick the best athlete. And if this person could go on and create a company that employs a thousand people, create something that a million can use, why not? Yeah. Well, with a physician shortage pending, I would be on that committee arguing for the physicians, even though I completely get it. It's the system that burns them out. It's not really, it's it's the bad model. There's a very bad business model called hospital residency. There's another bad business model called primary care, and it just chews people up. It's a grind, uh, meat grinder. Um, do you see other business models out there that are, and this is off topic, but that are really working well for physicians where there's a lower burnout rate? Um, well, I just had a conversation with a guy about the so-called concierge medicine business model. And uh, while that's a very small percentage of primary care physicians, there are very, very few specialty physicians who are doing it. The people who do it seemed happier, but it's just not scalable. And it's not the answer for Sick Care USA. So that's one model. And it, for some people, it seems to work. For other people, it doesn't. Um, another model is just because you know, you don't, like I said, you don't have to quit your day job to do these side gigs in physician entrepreneurship. And I think the more you can ladder or stack the portfolio of side gigs to your advantage under which you have control, then I think it creates less stress. But I would take your, your burnout point one step further, and that is that burnout really doesn't come just from the system. Yes, it does. It also comes from the organization that you work for, and it also comes from you personally. If you do not have skills that are resilient, if you work for a toxic organization, all the change in the system in the world isn't going to prevent the burnout. So th- there really have to be multiple solutions, and there are, um, that have to be applied. Uh, otherwise, um, as you know, you know, half of doctors, I mean, medical students are burned out before they're even done. It's kind of pathetic. So we, we really have to rethink medical education. And to your point of abusing residents and medical students, it's just a toxic environment and it needs to change. 
I'm a, I'm a doctor excited about this journey. I'm starting with SOP and I want to uh, read some books. What are you recommending as a good starting place for physicians to learn about the next step? Well, obviously, to be self-serving, you should read my books. <laughs> and uh, I've written one called the, the Life Science Innovation Roadmap. And actually, we just published one called the Digital, Digital Health Entrepreneurship. So I think there are very specific books about kind of how to get an idea to a patient. And then, of course, there's a whole literature in business, entrepreneurship, business models, customer stuff, all that business. And, you know, they're too numerous to mention. But I think the primary overlap, I, I tell people, as you go down this journey, you're going to find yourself reading the Wall Street Journal more than the New England Journal. True. True. Well, um, my final question is a little bit of a stumper, and I don't like to send it to people ahead of time because I really want you to think about it. But if you could get a, a message, the largest banner flying over America, what would your message be to Americans? So my biggest message would be that the biggest problem I see now with, with the 3.7 or 3.8 trillion spend is that it's a sick care system, not a health care system. And to me, the answer will be bioinnovation and entrepreneurship that transforms the sick care system into a healthcare system. Now, in order to do that, it will require changing the behavior of the two most neglected pieces of the value chain, the doctor and the patient. The doctor doesn't change his or her behavior for a number of reasons an example of which is a very high percentage not practicing evidence-based medicine, and patients don't do what they're supposed to do for a number of reasons. A part of it has to do with they're poorly educated. A part of it is they don't have a motivation to do it. A part of it is they don't have skin in the game. So I think we need to rethink the system. And it doesn't really matter whether it's Medicare for all or market-driven or whatever. To me, that's a smokescreen. I really think the fundamental problem is changing doctor and patient behavior and including them in the conversation. Right now, the conversation is between big medicine, the biomedical industrial complex, and the insurance companies. They're ignoring everybody else. Absolutely. Have been for decades. The physicians have just lost the power in the lobbying effort. The, the big healthcare lobby right now with the spend they have could buy the next four lobbies combined. It's just almost ridiculous. And uh, one out of every six lobbyists walking in DC and in state capitals are healthcare lawyer, uh, law, healthcare lawyers and healthcare lobbyists. Um, and you have to ask well, yourself, to why. you have to ask yourself why, but well, that's another conversation. Yeah. Yeah. It's just the interchange between congressional staffers becoming lobbyists, becoming congressional staffers is just incested at its highest level. Well, I want to thank you for your time, Dr. Myers. We'll uh, pick this up again soon. I hope and we'll watch this organization continue to grow. And congratulations for all your success. This is an amazing organization. How can they find in their, their chapter in Houston or wherever they live? Sure. So the best way to go is to www.sopenet.org. And that's our website, and you'll see the chapters listed there. Very good. Okay, well, thank you again for your time. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by 
listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.